0: Two of my favorite people on this podcast, Nathaniel Philbrick, historian. We're going to talk about his latest book and a bunch of his other books that I've read. He is right there with anyone when it comes to American history. And Sarah Walsh, who's just as good on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then Life Advice. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved QuickBets which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in DC, and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. ease. So start planning your next getaway and find your Perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Sarah Walsh,
0: not only from the NFL on Fox, but NFL Network and, of course, a very close friend joins us. Uh, we'll talk a little Tampa Bay box. Maybe we'll get to some other stuff. I know you're immediately on the backdrop here. Um, people, people have said this is what happens when you leave ESPN because they think this is the only bedroom. So what I'm do you mean? Go uh-
2: why does it have to do with anything you, with leaving ESPN? What do you mean?
0: Because I've been a failure since.
2: Uh That's not true. They don't see the other. They don't see the the room with the ocean view. Why, by the way, why don't you do it from there? We're in like a back, back underground bedroom here. We got ocean views and you're not using them.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, I didn't want to do that. And I, you know what I wanted? I wanted upstairs to be upstairs. I don't want, because before I had a setup where whenever I came home, there was this mini studio in the corner and I'm like, what am I a DJ? It's like, I just, you know,
2: you also have two TVs on the wall. So I don't think like the mini studios, like ruining the like vibe. You already have two TVs on the wall, which I think isn't, it's not a great look.
0: Well, that's funny. Cause when I, when I sold one of the places, they were like, is he going to leave the TVs? And I went, yeah, it's fine. I'll leave those TVs. The guy was like, awesome. And then I'd heard the, the, you wanted
2: two TVs on the wall.
0: He did. Yeah. I don't think the wife did.
2: Yeah. I was going to say he's single. That's the only way that gets left that way.
0: This would be a good segment. Why do men and then dot, dot, dot? But why would women reject two televisions just out of hand? What is it about women?
2: Aesthetically, it looks terrible. Like, so, like, go to any design page, right? Like, go to any, um, any designer that people follow, right? Do you ever see two TVs on the wall? Aesthetically, like that looks terrible. By the way, if you want to do it in your basement, which I've been to the West for basement TVs everywhere, all over the wall. No problem with that. It's in the basement. It's hidden. We're talking main room. You walk in, you've got two TVs on the wall. No. I mean, that's just, no, that says, I, that says I'm single to me.
0: You know what it says to me is <laughs> watching all these pays for the house that TVs are in.
2: Yeah, no, I get that. But you could also, the the bedroom you're in, you could put 15 TVs on the wall behind you. No problem.
0: I but do have okay. something. I bought a poster, though. I bought a poster for this back area here. What poster? I'll maybe at the end of the segment. Uh,
2: by, the way, by the way, by the way, this is coming off very negative. I'm not, you do you, right? Like, the TVs make you happy. It's your house. Put the TVs everywhere. Like, I don't, it, that's, that's fine. I'm just saying I, yes, women don't want two TVs on the wall although one didn't one time you go but i could watch a game and you could watch housewives like isn't that like the compromise
0: yeah no i actually think it's brilliant i think i'm ahead of everybody on this i think people are going to have two tvs back to the future the last one you know he went in and had like nine nine different frames up and that was the future watch of television and by the way we're already past that year now in real years so I think I'm just early on this one I don't feel like it's super negative but when you said you do you I don't know that there's anybody that does you more than me so yeah I don't I don't I don't think we have to worry about that
2: wait have you can we share the um my favorite piece of art that you ever got you and I I believe correct me if I am wrong we were in Nordstrom's I think it was from Nordstrom and there Both was like them? uh, the, the one Nordstrom in right. West Hartford. And, uh, there was that picture that it was like a free piece of art. It was totally cheesy. The one that says, um, what I love best about my home is who I share it with. And yes. we made you get it and you hung it up in your house. I love it. It's my favorite. It's my, do you have it with you? Is it gone?
0: I think it's in storage at some point. You
2: need to break it out. It I was thought maybe it, the best part of that house.
0: Yeah. Cause it was, it was sending the wrong vibe. You know, somebody somebody may come to hang, and they'd be like, "Wait, what?" And I go, "No, that's it's, funny." Yeah, like that's the joke. Um, all right, we'll get. Maybe I'll show you the poster at the end of this. All right, let's uh, let's do a little box. Okay, so we knew this. We knew off the Super Bowl. They had two things working for them last year. They were the healthiest team in the NFL, and by a lot of metrics, they played the easiest schedule. But then, look, you beat New Orleans finally. You can't beat in the regular season. You win at Green Bay, and you beat the Chiefs 31-9. It's not like it was this fluky team. They had a ton of talent. Everybody's coming back. Uh, They're still a very good team, but you cover it firsthand. You're down there. What's this week been like learning about Godwin, Fournette, and some of the other uncertainties health-wise?
2: So there have been a lot of injuries this year, and I think the thought process when they re-signed everybody, when they re-signed every starter, okay, why wouldn't this team repeat? Well, you can't control injuries, right? Like you can't, if you take a Tom Brady out, now we got a different team. And, and Tom clearly has not been an injury issue, but this team has been riddled with injuries in a way that they never were a year ago. And they've been piling up, but they have so much talent on that roster. I feel like you've been able to plug holes. They've been able to get through it. I think some of that is, as you talked about, easy schedule last year. They have an easy schedule this year. Uh, even down the stretch right now, they've got the Panthers twice and the Jets now to finish off the season. But this week in particular has been the worst when it comes to the injuries. The defense is is really talented. Their secondary has been banged up all year. They've been without their corners. And I think the thought process all year was, okay, we lose a guy here. We can make do until they're thinking that they're going to get everybody back, right? For the postseason. And and they're on trend for that. But this last game against the Saints, when you're talking Godwin, you're talking Fournette, you're talking Mike Evans, uh, that's you can't just plug those holes because that's not one hole to plug. I mean, that is At one point, I mean, it's literally the offense, right? Aside from Tom, it's Tom's, all Tom's weapons. Gronk was out on the field, but then you take him out of it. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a really a challenge. I think it is more so than the rest of the year, a massive, massive issue that is going to be really, really difficult for this team. You cannot fire on the same cylinders when you don't have those cylinders out there working. And uh, it's going to, it's going to be a problem now, how healthy they can get before this postseason starts. We don't know. Godwin was leading the team in receptions. He's having a career year. I mean, it's a huge loss. You're going to get Antonio Brown back. And that's the thing about this team. They've always kind of, you know, it's been a give and take. where this guy goes out, and well, they're getting this guy back. And that's why they're so stacked with pro bowlers. But look, Antonio Brown can't make up for the absence of Fournette Evans and Godwin. and And now there's, I think, some real issues there.
0: What was the vibe around the team like? I mean, I don't know if it's a New Orleans thing. I don't, I'm sure the injuries, because even Arians afterwards when they was asking about the game, he's like, look, I'm more concerned I lost seven starters at some point tonight. And I think some people maybe thought he was making excuses, and I, I really didn't take it that way. I thought he was just telling us, like, yeah. look, we have longer-term issues than just a matchup in New Orleans that doesn't seem to go our way. So what was it like around the team?
2: I think sort of stunned, right? I will say I don't think this team is a team that panics. Um, and that comes from obviously the guy at the top. I mean, Brady's been in everything. He's been down, uh, in a massive hole in a super bowl and he doesn't panic. So he's not going to panic over a regular season game when this team is clearly has its sights set on the postseason that is going to be a lock. And, but it's sort of, I don't, the word may be stupefying. Like they, and not only is it a problem against the saints, this has been sort of a problem for them in primetime games. I mean, this was a Sunday night. It was funny the week going into the Saints game. They're like, look, um, we got our butts whooped. Um, they were talking about from a year ago with the saints did on Sunday night football. And there was just no belief. It's funny. Like there was no belief that there's no way that this team comes out on Sunday night football against a team that they have stumbled again and again against in the regular season. and, and, does it again and so yeah it's stunning it's it's insane what sean payton has been able to game plan his team to do against a bucks team that at the time when that game started was healthier had more talent on the roster um had had less injuries in in that aspect i think when you go um you know starters for starters on sunday night so i think it was just sort of like this I don't know if sun silence is the word, but just like, just almost disbelief. Like how did this happen on Sunday night football again to this team? And then, um, that sort of lost in the fact that like we have major losses that are now not coming back either in Chris Godwin, or we don't know when the other guys are coming back. So it's, it's sort of this, I think, stunned silence, but they're going to get back on track that they've got the Panthers. They are not a team that's going to go, oh, we can't do it because they're still going to look around and go, hey, our roster is just as talented. Um, The offense is going to have to figure some things out in terms of who they're going to put in. But the defense is talented. They didn't allow the Saints to score a touchdown. Uh, The defense is good. The Saints, they were just better on Sunday night. But, yeah, I think it punched holes in this theory of, um, you know, that they're going to just waltz into anything because they they clearly are not.
0: Antonio Brown coming back. I actually just appreciated Arians being like, hey, it makes us better like I'm over it. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, What was your reaction to his, his brutal honesty, which I actually find refreshing.
2: Um, I love his brutal honesty, right? As anybody in the media would do. Um, So it's funny when you just said the thing about like, you know, I don't think Bruce is making excuses. Like Bruce just tells it like it is to the point that I think sometimes the PR guys are like, Hey, we wish Bruce wouldn't tell it like it is, you know? Um, He doesn't care. So when the other day when he's like, it was so funny, the question was asked, um, not by me. It was asked by Jenna Lane um, from ESPN about, you know, what do you say to people that are going to criticize this decision? Or what? I, as soon as she said, "What, what would you say about what people think?" I'm like, I knew what was coming out of his mouth. But like, all you had to say is like, "What do you think about what others think of you?" And Bruce is like, "I don't give a shit." And like, I mean, that's his. That's how Bruce is. Like, he doesn't give a shit, and he'll tell you that. And um I appreciate, which I know you do too, like brutal honesty, like don't sugarcoat things. And um look, I think there's two ways you could look at that Antonio situation, right? You could look at it and go, okay, the tough decision is to stand up for what's right and cut this guy because you said you would cut him if he did anything wrong. And uh you said it, so I'm gonna stick to what I said because I don't wanna answer the questions like what I'm about to get. Or is it even tougher? To be like, Hey, I said it. I'm the one that's gonna have to go up and answer the questions that I'm going against what I said. And like that's what Bruce, I mean, that's not easy either, right? And he clearly just said, uh, I think that decision was made before Chris Godwin went out, obviously, but we are not a better football team without him. I'm gonna go up there, and I'm gonna have to take it and own it because I said that I would do something differently in in a at a previous time, which was last year. And uh, and that's not easy, but I will give Bruce the credit of like he doesn't care. Like he just doesn't care. He's going to do what he thinks is right in that moment, um, and what he thinks is right for the football team. And he's not really worried about answering questions to it.
0: How uh, this is this might be stupid because I don't know exactly the full schedule here. But I mean, was when you're asking Arians a question, is it a little different than when you're asking somebody else a question that you've been used to covering? Because I know you, you know, you've been on the local beat before you got to ESPN and everything do you have like, okay, I already know there's like this list of 10 questions and seven of them I'm not going to ask him because I already know how he's going to handle it. Like, is he a different challenge in
2: the way you'll ask him questions? No, he's awesome. But, but that's like, I love that though. Like, I love that he doesn't, he doesn't play the game. He doesn't do the PR thing. He says things he shouldn't. And like, I think we talked about it last year when he would criticize Tom and people were like, Oh my God, there's problems. And I'm like, no man, like Tom's not a robot. If Tom makes a bad throw, like he's not going to cover for him and be like, well, I think, you know, maybe the read was, maybe like this guy ran a bad route. Like, no, he's like, Tom made a bad throw. And I think anybody that you cover, um, and, and I didn't even like the thing about when he was saying, I don't, I don't, you know, give a shit. Like, I don't even mean that in a bad way. Like, I just knew that that's how he was going to answer it. But I, but what's the quote that got used by everyone. Right. It's like that quote. Right. And, um, and he'll be, and he'll come out and flat out say like, teams can't run it against like, and he said it in more forceful ways than that. But as a media member, you love it. You love a guy that doesn't BS you. You love a guy that kind of gives it to you straight. I sort of personally like enjoy Bruce to saltiness and he's, and he's not like, he's, he's like, a, he's awesome. He's awesome in person. He, um, I find his saltiness like endearing Um, he was, you know, on that laundry list of, uh, I'm not sure how, if you're aware of this, but on that laundry list of the bucks that are hurt, like he's in, he's in rough shape right now, Bruce, like he gets golf carted out, um, like on and off the field. Like at halftime, a golf cart comes out to take him off. He's got like an Achilles injury. He's beat up and like, he won't sit down for a second, but like, he's like, he's hurting. And, um, and I remember realizing like how bad a shape he was in two, was it two, three weeks ago I was on the box game for Fox, they were playing in Atlanta. So I was on the broadcast and I remember watching him walk out of the tunnel. I'm like, Bruce is like barely able to walk. And then in the third quarter, he's like losing his mind at a ref, like losing his mind. This, this coach that's barely like 69, barely able to walk at the moment. And he is like full fiery Bruce. And I love it. So like, no, I don't think people kowtow how they ask stuff. You just kind of know him. And I think people like love him for that.
0: So, the rest of the way, they got Carolina twice. They got the Jets. They're 10 point favorites, even with all the limitations of the roster. Yeah. Because, uh, like, you know, if you've watched Cam, it it looks uh, like it's over. And Darnold hasn't been very good. He hadn't played since, uh, I think, November 7th. And then there was talk that he and, and Cam were going to split. So, like, this feels like not only payback, but a nice division game. The schedule's easy the rest of the way. But then you get into the playoffs. Yeah. Um, What do you think of this team right now? How does it feel today versus where we were at a year ago, where it it wasn't a certainty by any stretch last year either, um, but they had an unbelievable run and pulled this thing off. How do you feel now a year later?
2: Here's the thing. I think a year ago, it was like this lightning in a bottle feeling where it wasn't expected. And when something's not expected, everything is great, right? Like, you know, like they go to the conference championship game. What a win, right? Like, that's an incredible story um if they don't win at all it's it's not a win for them so i think just that clouds like the expectations of like where they are so do you feel if you're asking like do i feel like as good about them as i did a year ago no like i thought when they came back a year ago in atlanta down huge at halftime tom and company come out and score on every pretty much every possession the second half and they start rolling i'm like yeah i can see this team rolling i i i didn't know if they would beat the saints in new orleans cuz they struggle I thought for sure if they got there to green Bay, I'm like, they're going to like, it was just this like moment in time where you felt like they were going to do it. I think anybody that's ever like won a super bowl will tell you how hard it is to do it again. I think it's really, it's going to be really difficult for them. I think it's tough. Um, I think teams, Washington has done it where if they knocked Tom around, um, he even talked about how he held on to the ball too long in that game. Um, or no, I'm sorry. He didn't get rid of it. He was getting rid of it. Too fast because he'd gotten hit right, and that maybe there were times he should have held it longer. Um, I know other teams, the Bills, for example, were like that was going to be our game plan against them. The Bills came back on them when and they shouldn't have, given where the Bucks were in that game. Um, you've seen the Saints sort of figure them out, and so no, I think is does the roster say that they have enough people on it that in uh, three weeks' time could be healthy and could they make a run? Yes. Is it um? Is it a given? Not even close, right? And I don't think that that feeling right now, around here, it's just not a good feeling right now. I mean, there's there's major losses this week, and I don't think we really know the extent of Fournette and and Mike Evans and how and when they'll be able to come back and it and at what capacity, right? So. Yeah, I think there's major question marks and I don't think that there is this like, yeah, we're going to skate on through and it's going to look like last year. I think it's going to be far more challenging than it was a year ago at this time, even having the experience of being together longer.
0: I know you got to run to the facility. I just want to remind everybody to follow Sarah Walsh on Instagram, Sarah Walsh 10. What is that? Your soccer number from college?
2: Yeah, soccer number. It was my number. um, No, like since seventh grade, I'm 10 my whole life. Every once in a while, when someone took ten, it was like a big problem. You know, freshman year of college, someone took ten, big problem for me.
0: So you still have it in there? A little, little braggy?
2: No. What do you mean? Do, what do I have? What in there? That ten's my number.
0: Well, you know, like, hey, I played sports.
2: <laughs> I don't. Is it bragging? I didn't say I played well. Is it bragging to say I played sports?
0: I, I was asking. I wasn't confirming. I'm. I'm not. confirmed. i am i am not i am It's an open ended. It's. uh and you can see her awesome twins. Uh, the videos alone are worth to follow. So but you
2: love kids, so.
0: I do. I like your kids. I like kids. Everybody knows I like kids. Just not that much to you're, buy a couple. You know?
2: Yeah, no. You're actually, you're really good with kids. Kids love me. Yeah, they do love you. They like climbing on you. Or mine do.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say of the two, I'm, I'm ranked higher with your daughter than your son. But I don't know. It's been a while, so
2: it has been a while. It has down here this off season. You're just very busy.
0: Yeah, I saw a jet ski conference down there that I was interested in. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> like buying one, just attending. No, for it's just, you just want to no, go.
0: Guys just put on their hats and polos and talk about their jet skis and stuff. And I was like, that that's something Tuesday jet ski conference in Tampa.
2: That. <laughs> that would be like funny to go to like for entertainment purposes and be like really fully invested in jet ski conversations i'll go
0: when i when i went to disney uh one of the six times by myself and i hosted the joe namath thing because i think greeny (laughs) pulled out and like seven other people but you knew when espn was like is there any way you can fly like today to disney to host this thing with joe namath and apparently joe namath also was like on his way to disney to host this thing for espn radio And then his guy last minute was like, hey, Joe doesn't want to come. And they were like, all right, we'll double it. Like, "Okay, see you in a few hours. Like they knew the play, like have it all mapped out, have the whole thing set. And then at the last minute, say you're going to pull out and then see what kind of money you can get. It's called the Snoop Dogg. And so then I flew down and then it was I think the thing was the next day. So they put me in the princess suite. Stop. Yeah. At the at the at the at the yacht, you know, (laughs) whatever the they call it, like. Whatever the piers are right. over by the water park. There's yeah. like a yacht yeah. section or whatever. Yeah. So I go, all right, you know what? I'm going to go out for just a little bit just to see what it's like midweek. And I went to not Jelly Roll, the Dueling Pianos. I went to this other club and it was all like people on a corporate retreat. And I think it was for SIDU or ski I don't forget. And these people were fucking tanked because yeah, they were just like, it. Right. They were letting loose. Sean Paul was going and people like adults were just making out and it wasn't even midnight. It was hilarious. And uh I went back to my princess suite. So there you go.
2: Jet ski conference coming up.
0: I know I gotta double check the uh the dues here because <laughs> yeah, there's sea do. Is it both?
2: Is is uh is ski do the one that's in the snow? You know how there's there's like snow that, would make,
0: it that would, would make sense. It would make sense.
2: <laughs> the one in
0: the water well here's the deal both are accurate you're right about terrain um i think (laughs) that was pretty self-explanatory so i I feel a little out loud stupid right now but what i'm saying is i don't remember whose conference it was so if it's a Doo person that doesn't like that i'm branding the the company as some wild orgy at, at the at the disney yacht club you don't it could have been skidoo I forget who was who was what I just remember everybody was wearing their shirts and everybody had all their company hats on and it was a free-for-all it was just like people you could tell like this is the one year you get away from everybody I can tell and uh there you go did
2: you, did you ask anyone to come back to your princess suite
0: no I had like I don't even think I had a full course light and I was like I'm out of here I'm out of here I was like this isn't <laughs> and I had stuff to do I had to interview Joe Namath the next day I had to be hot I had to be fresh all right thank you Sarah see ya This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack, And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call? Old school guy probably should call. It's like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up. The glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time. Said Do you want to go ahead with it, and I was like, now I understand. It's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a thing right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. ease so start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the hotels.com app today this is something i've been looking forward
0: to for a long time he's tough tough to get he's like the tom brady of, of authors so uh he is one of the great historians i believe of our time it's nathaniel philbrick he joins us from nantucket he has a new book out it is travels with george in search of washington and his legacy and it's a bit of a pivot for Philbrick, because there's some first person in it as he's recapping this travel. George becoming president um, feels very informal. If you say the first president, call him George in a first name basis. But before we get started, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I, I'm so blown away by your work. It, it's also fun to read too, which I think is not always the easiest thing with some of the historical stuff. So thanks for joining us.
3: Oh, it's great to join you and to to. Speak to a, a fellow islander, even though you are a rival islander, a vineyarder, oh my goodness, I know right i look, I'll tell you, I have
0: more fun on Nantucket, so <laughs> there, as I've gotten older, I'm like, you know the restaurants are a little bit better, but I would say landscape and, and visuals the vineyard the vineyard has Nantucket on that, uh, yeah, also no they
3: they're very different, but uh yeah, no, we all love our homes, I guess
0: um so this is something you know you've been doing this over 20 years i would say and you know in the heart of the season another one you know it goes back 20 years where people are probably very familiar with that with the book and uh the movie but with this one i guess let's kind of go from where you start this it's 1789 in mm-hmm. in Wa- George Washington's story. He's just become the first president of this nation. He's got to visit all the different parts of this union that not everybody's unioned up at this point. So kind of take us to the beginning and the origin of the importance of this trip that you actually reenact yourself with your wife and your dog.
3: Yeah, yeah. We sort of did our John Steinbeck Travels with Charlie imitation. And uh, my wife, Melissa, and I and our dog, Dora, uh, followed Washington's travels. And, you know, what I think a lot of people don't realize is how divided the country was from the very beginning. Uh, The the Constitution divided the country. There were the Federalists who were all for it and for a strong national government. And then there were the Anti-Federalists who believed the state should retain the power that they had had. Uh, under the original Articles of Confederation and and distrusted this strong federal government. Two states, Rhode Island and North Carolina, hadn't even ratified the Constitution, hadn't even participated in his election. And so Washington realized he had to do something to unite this country. And, um, you know, so it's it wasn't all that different from today. Uh, you know, we think we invented partisanship, but Washington was dealing it from the dealing with it from the very first. And so uh, I felt like it would be really interesting uh, in our times of division to try to figure out what Washington did at the very beginning of our history to pull us together.
0: Yeah, it is always a great lesson with anything historical. And I, I've definitely picked up you know my own level of education on what happened. But every time you're reading stuff, you're like, man, nothing has changed. Nothing yeah, has changed. In, and exactly. in Washington, incredibly insightful And realizing, you know, because it seems crazy to be like, hey, it'd be better if we just have one party. We're all going in the same direction here. That's kind of what he's saying. Uh, But as soon as the federalists are established, it was what he was. You had the anti-federalists. So what was it like? How did he even get elected? Because that process itself is is somewhat similar, but also different um, for somebody that was such a war hero. He at least had the cachet to get the recognition to get people to support him. But you're right. As soon as he was saying anything about his vision for the country, there was massive opposition. Absolutely and and
3: you know he was a war hero. Everyone loved George Washington because he had won, without him we would not be an independent country. and so he knew he was going to have a honeymoon period where he was the most famous guy in the world at that point. and so he used that that um, popularity to try to create a legitimate federal government, which hadn't existed before. And uh, and he did it largely because of these travels, largely because of uh, Alexander Hamilton's policies creating a tax structure that worked. Remember, these were 13 colonies that had rebelled against the strongest military power on earth over the issue of taxation. How was someone going to tax these people? So he realized he had a lot of challenges. And he also realized that those divisions were going to come back. They were going to come roaring back as soon as people understood what he felt he had to do, because he had suffered eight years during the revolution with a federal government that was incapable of working, incapable of, of, of taxing the people, of, incapable of doing anything. And so that had schooled him in the necessity of having um, a strong federal government. But, you know, it wasn't what everybody believed in. And by his second uh, term, uh, Congress was anti-federalist. He, you know, and the divisions were as bad as anything we have today. And so not even George Washington uh, could rise above partisanship, but we owe him an eternal debt for creating the basis of the nation we have now.
0: Let's uh, go over some quick Washington facts here um, because as I've dug through it, like I remember being a little kid and the joke was always that he was the father of our country because apparently he was just having sex with everybody the entire time. That's actually not the case. Like there's a pretty good argument to be made that he was sterile, correct? And that he, if, if, if there's anything to be taken from this, this rumor that happened for hundreds of years is that he was an incredible flirt that if he showed up to a social event, he danced with everybody's women, but he just loved the attention of being the center of attention. Not that he maybe was this this scoundrel that he's made out yeah. to be in, in more common
3: history. Well, it's interesting. There's absolutely no whiff of scandal with him. You know what, what there was, he fell in front when he was young, he fell in love with his best friend's wife. Yeah, you know We know that. And, uh, you know, so this guy was not without passion and, um, and, you know, but he, he did, he loved the ladies, but there really is no, um, evidence that he, you know, he, he, he was doing anything behind Martha's back. Uh, you know, by the end of our travels, it took us a year and a half to follow Washington. We were really sick of the. You know, Washington slept here. He 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 he. I mean, he, the fact is, he decided he had to stay in public taverns. These were the roadside motels of his day. You know, it was a good thing there wasn't TripAdvisor because in his diary, it's like food terrible bed even worse i mean he, it was not fun he was doing this to to create a country he wasn't doing this you know to to um you know sleep around um he was sleeping around but it was uh you know in the name of this country
0: he also was uh by everything i've seen a shopaholic he loved ordering Items from overseas. (laughs) And then just if he had a credit card, he would have been maxing it out all the time because he was land rich. He was he was money poor. He was always broke and he yet was always shopping. And I think he was always worried about his debts. Correct.
3: Yes. Yes. Yeah. He uh, uh, yeah. Good thing. Credit cards hadn't been invented. Uh, you know, one of the reasons it could be argued, uh, he went uh, with uh, the rebels uh, in the revolution was he owed so much money in England. And, um, you know, so, you know, that's, that's that, but so did most of the Virginia planters, uh, including Jefferson and a lot of others. I mean, that was just how their lifestyle was. And, you know, he, he was, you know, he was struggling financially, which is hard for us to to recognize. Mount Vernon was losing money every year. Uh, Martha came in with quite a, a, you know, quite a bit of money. They spent a lot of it initially. And uh, he was able to to accumulate a lot of land in the West, largely because of his service during the French and Indian War. But he was barely keeping it above water uh, financially and desperate to sell whatever land he could out West. And, um, uh, you know, so this is a side of, another side of Washington that I think a lot of us don't realize that he, you know, he was, he tried to have the heir of the, the country squire, but the reality was he was struggling. And- when it comes to the topic of slavery
0: you know part of what i've read again you know i know lafayette's a, a central figure to him almost a, a lesser version of hamilton in a way But it was really refreshing to read something about Lafayette, who initially is like, this isn't this is awful, like what what you're doing here in Washington would listen and he would think about pivoting. But really, it felt like Washington was constantly just thinking about his value. So any moment where Washington was thinking of abolishing slavery at this time, some people argued at an address in New York in 1789 that he should have abolished it right then and there. But there was no way that he was going to do it because, as you point out in the book, that he wasn't going to immediately call out the South and feel like he wasn't going to be able to put this nation together after they just got done with this Revolutionary War. So I don't think it's all that altruistic when he debated it. I think it was very much financially motivated. But as you point out, too, histories, we judge history differently than we ever have. How do you judge it now? How do you handle this part of the story for
3: Yeah, Washington? well, you know, and the you, the slavery issue was one I really felt had to be front and center in this book. Uh, and, and one of the things I hope, reader's getaway is how far Washington traveled. Remember, this is a guy in terms of around the country, but also as a human being. This was a guy who became a slave owner at 11 uh, when his father died and inherited some enslaved workers. And by the time the revolution was over, he was completely questioning uh, where he had come from on slavery. Lafayette, whom you mentioned, what would later be quoted saying, if I had known I was helping to create a land of slavery, I would have never lifted my sword in the cause of America. And he was probably Washington's best friend and would remain so for all of Washington's life. But Washington didn't free his, his enslaved workers until after his death. Um, but you got it. He was the only uh, uh, slaveholding Founding father to do that, um, and and so Washington is a paradox, like all human beings. Uh, he, you know, he was able to question the assumptions of his childhood, but the fact that he didn't fr- completely free himself from those, I don't think, negates the fact. Uh, that of what the good he did do, he helped, he created the union, the same concept that led Abraham Lincoln to uh, issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And so, you know, it's, it's a big part of, of Washington's legacy. And there's, you know, he, Every time you think he, oh yeah, he's doing something good here, he's 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 you know going for his his own bottom line uh, when it comes to his enslaved workers or Martha's, who whom he didn't own, and so it's very complex. Um, but uh, the one thing I, I will say is Washington was tortured by it; he it really bothered him, and I think you know you have to look if you're going to look at. The beginnings of our country, Washington in that tortured relationship to the issue of slavery, embodies so much of the legacy we're dealing with today. On the military side, I
0: can't help but laugh. and I know you were born in Boston and, and me spending a good chunk of my life in Massachusetts. Um, you know, the idea of the mass hole, right? And in the 1700s, it was as strong as ever. Like, I don't know if it was you or someone else who wrote it. I remember the Virginia militia showing up to Boston Common and they had like fancy linen blouses and polished brass rifles and immaculate horses. And the Boston guys were, weren't really Boston. But they were people from like outside Lexington and the hills and Bill and, Yeah, right. Yeah. Bill Ricker. <laughs> <laughs> and, and. Like Basically, the Boston guys start fighting with the Virginia guys because they're calling them fancy. And everybody is consistently, including Washington, once he comes up, to be like, what is up with these guys? And so to give the listener a little bit more history here, Artemis Ward, who was one of the generals who was at the Battle of Bunker Hill, um, and wanted him to reinforce Dorchester Heights while the British were occupying what was Boston. And, and if people don't understand this geographically, Boston was essentially an island with a thin, thin line of land to get you in and out. It's all been backfilled, obviously. Um, I think Putnam and, and Prescott were two other generals. So you have this group of Boston generals that all now have to report to Washington, who's essentially a foreigner by not being from Massachusetts. Yeah. I laugh every time when I see some sort of historical anecdote where it basically was like, yeah, Washington couldn't understand any of the mass people and all the mass people basically hated him too. So yeah. add more depth to that because that is a common theme every time I've read about it.
3: All right. The first time he arrives, he's, he, he can't, he, the, the militiamen, the, the, you know, the, the provincial army of new Englanders, he's appalled. He calls them a stupid, dirty people. That's a quote. <laughs> And, um, and that, that comment would be leaked to the press. And so Artemis Ward did not take that well, nor did, um, a lot of new Englanders. And, you know, and so it did not start well. And as you know, that, that scene where, you know, the, the Boston guys are duking it out with those fancy Virginians, uh, Washington literally wades. Remember Washington was a big dude. He was six foot, four inches, um, which is was really tall in the late 18th century and he wades into the middle of this fight and grabs the two central characters by their the scruff of their necks and says you know stop it <laughs> and and so he physically impressed the new englanders
0: uh, that, that's in- ju- just to interrupt though that that is a very real like He wasn't just big for those times. It's pretty clear, like if we're talking about a guy who could handle himself physically, that's a big part of his success because it almost feels like everyone was in awe of his strength and his stature.
3: Correct? Yeah, right. If he if I I think if he had been born today, he would have been a professional athlete. Um, There's all sorts of accounts of he could throw things Farther than anyone. I mean, really, you know, there's account during the revolution uh, where he's he and his officers have a competition where they're throwing this big rock. And he was 15, 20, maybe even 30 years older than most of his officers. And he threw it well beyond anything they could do. And he didn't even try. You know, he just was physically, you know, you know, really impressive. And he used that um, uh, as as not only as general, but as president, he you know he would walk into a room, and people would literally gasp. I mean, it was just he had that that charismatic presence. Henry Knox, who was uh, a Boston guy, who was his um, head of the artillery, remarked where at one point in New York, uh, a, a young British officer was trying to deliver a message to Washington that Washington refused to take, but the young officer was ushered in. And Knox said, the, the. The General seemed to be something supernatural uh, to this young officer. He was just so overcome with it, you know, his presence. and And so this was, you know he it was his superpower. Um, he could use that in a way uh, to impress people on both sides of the political fence. Uh, it was very useful for him when France came into the war, and he was dealing with an alliance. And so you know he there there's uh, one guy, Benjamin Rush, who was not a fan of Washington's, necessarily, but said, uh, if you see him, you you know that this man is a general. There's just no one who who looks you know more um, you know impressive than than George Washington. Let's go
0: to the Bunker Hill battle. Um, by the way, did you and Ben
3: Affleck? Where are we at with this this movie? Uh, I'm afraid it's, it died on the vine. A um, a really good screenplay was written, and um, but it it hasn't happened. Um, and and so um, it's it's too bad because I think uh you know it could. Uh, you know, just about all my books have been optioned. Uh, one was actually a movie. Um, usually Mayflower has been optioned, I think three or four times and, you know, everybody gets excited and then, you know, nothing happens. 99% of of optioned books never see the screen. So it's, it's, you know, you, you have to do it, but now, valiant ambition. The one about Benedict Arnold is now looking promising. We'll see. So,
0: yeah, that is welcome to Hollywood. Get close, get disappointed, yep. start over.
3: Yep. Yeah. Everybody loves you until, uh, something else comes along. (laughs) The reason I love
0: the Bunker Hill book, um, and for people that, that, you know, understand it's this, basically there was, there was, it's kind of the first, um, the first battle of announcing like, wait, a wake up call. I would think to the British, again, this is your expertise. You wrote the book, jump in, correct me anytime I, I am off, off track here. Um, but Washington is not a part of this battle. And what I always loved about this story is that somebody like Joseph Warren, who's incredibly popular, very educated, um, is, is a leader at this time in 1775. And even though the, I would say at this point, the, the rebels, you know, the Mary, however you would phrase it, lose this position. The British, it, w- it was the kind of win where you're like, that wasn't even worth it because of the losses. This is a wake up call. That, like these people coming in from the hills right. and all these militias all over New England, like this is a major problem. And Joseph Warren, who, if you want to give more backstory, jump in. Um, but he wasn't even. They didn't even want him to fight, and he felt like, no, no, I absolutely have to fight. Right. And he's and we lose him in this battle.
3: Right, and Warren, uh, a loyalist, would later say, if Joseph Warren had not died in the Battle of Bunker Hill. George Washington would have been a non-entity, uh, which is, just shows you how impressive Joseph Warren. This was a, a guy who was a widower with four kids under the age of, a, of 10, I think it is. And he was a doctor, one of the foremost doctors in Boston, charismatic, a great writer, a wonderful orator. He delivered a, a speech uh, in, the, you know, in the midst of all of this, this ter- revolutionary turmoil um, uh, in a toga. you know, in in imitation of of the Greeks and Romans. And um, he he was very, you know, he was the man, really. He was the one who ordered Paul Revere to head out. And, you know, he really was the guy happening. And he was also a major general who felt, you know, he needed to be out there uh, in the Battle of Bunker Hill. And he went out there very late in the battle when, you know, the British charged three times uh, horrible losses you know close to 50% casualties and they overrun ran this little f- mud fort um on the top of Breed's Hill not Bunker Hill um and it was you know a you know blood was literally ankle deep in there uh, Warren was there um, made his escape but was eventually tracked down and killed and uh Washington and it's it was a loss but it taught the British that these guys can fight, and that this is not going—you know—we're not just going to intimidate them with a bayonet charge. Uh, we are in a war. This is not just a skirmish. And you know, the great irony is Washington doesn't show up until two weeks later, uh, after all this. And Joseph Warren is dead, and you know the New Englanders aren't particularly excited to have this Virginian here. And yet Washington, who I—you know—I. I, I came to realize, recognize, I don't, he didn't win the American revolution. He survived it. And I don't think there would be any other leader in the American military at that time who could have done it, you know, and without Washington, you know, the country, it would have just, everything would have fallen apart. He just hung in there.
0: Uh, that's a great way to say, it, cause if, i I've gone through all the battles, um, you know, if he were. You know, people can look at LeBron James, right? And say, yeah, but look how many NBA finals he's lost. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I go, you know, if you looked at George Washington and you go, by the battle, he'd oh, probably yeah. have an under 500 record.
3: Oh, <laughs> um, I, yeah, way and, and, right? under 500. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so, I mean, Brandywine, like w- what was it about him getting people, whether it was, you know, deserters being afraid of being shot at the side of the road to rot in the snowy woods, but every time you think there's no way this, this army can ride this out guys are eating their own moccasins boiling them um you know they're eating dead cows on the side of the road there was a guy that's like wasn't there a group i remember one battle where they said screw it and they just went after some farmers chickens and then they they killed the soldiers for even doing that the fact that washington can put this together as you said survive it not win it with some help from the french let's not kid ourselves um that part of it is is what i can't maybe what led him to even having the vision to be a president that could see the future before it happened
3: right well washington was by nature very aggressive he wanted desperately to have that one battle that he could win it all but he realized that if he kept trying that which he wanted to do he'd lose it all and so he had to go against his natural inclinations and play rope a dope uh, to to not risk it all, just to hang in there. And you know, for a military guy, this was very frustrating. You know, you don't you don't go in there and you know go at it hammer and tongs. You you hold back and you just hang in there. And that's how we won uh, because you know when he would uh, you know go against the British. For example, at Brandywine, he would inevitably be out uh, by the opposition. He was not a great strategic think- thinker and not a great tactician, but what he was was a great politician. And that's really the skill that enabled him to survive those eight years because no one else... Uh, could have handled our, the Continental Congress that had, you know, was very weak, unable to do anything. And yet second guess them, they were fearful that uh, the military would take them over, you know, another a coup. That's how all other revolutions had gone in the past. But Washington was one of those people who realized that everything would be for nothing if that happened. And so he hung in there under immense pressures and temptations. The patience of the man is remarkable. And ultimately was triumphant, not because he was a great battlefield general, but because he was someone who understood the priorities uh, that a, a new uh, revolution created country needed to have. And, you know, it's pretty remarkable. You've written about this extensively, too. But the, I almost feel
0: like I have to ask you about the, the naval side of this, the, the shipping side, in that the French helped only to prevent Britain from having another country. Um, <laughs> right but (laughs) that's pretty much it right their motivations were clear their lack of respect for any military leadership on the American side is is actually funny to read about um yeah I I, without it it doesn't happen you know we might all have accents today you don't know but what's your favorite story of of kind of unlocking the French assistance against the British certainly when it came to you know, battle at sea and the lack of communication between, you know, you had a Northern general and then Washington, like, it was just every time they thought they would have help, they'd be like, yeah,
3: we'll get there when we get
0: there, but we're not going to do anything you want us to do.
3: Yeah. They, they basically ignored Washington. Washington, (laughs) you know, said, guys, what we need is the French Navy. If the French Navy will eliminate the, because Britain had the strongest Navy in the world. But if the French Navy would, Focus on North America. Help him out. That would give his army, along with the French, the chance to get the the victory that might actually win this war. But the French had their own agenda. Remember, uh, the money to, in the world, most of the money in the world was made in the Caribbean islands with the sugar plantations, and and so their navy was spent a lot of the time down there. and Washington couldn't get them up here, and so they basically ignored him. And um, uh, uh, he spent three years intensely frustrated. He desperately wanted them to come to New York. They said, nah, we're going to the Chesapeake. Washington was furious, but he said, okay, what am I going to do? I guess I'll march from New York to Yorktown, 500 miles. They marched
0: the whole way down. and they have to go like inland for stretches of it as well. Right. So go ahead.
3: Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, can do You remember those New Englanders who didn't take kindly to him? you know, six years before they were not, hot, you know, the, the, the swamps of Virginia were a killing ground, but Washington is able to say, look, you, we've got to do this. We're going to do it. They did it. They arrived and they won the war with it because the French Navy finally arrived, took out the British Cornwallis doesn't move from Yorktown. Bang. It happens. It was a miracle. What You know, it, those of those of us who think it was fated, you know, that that the the American militia would throw off the chains of British tyranny and, you know, as God ordained, baloney. Uh, the only reason we are an independent country is that the French Navy defeated the British in the che- Battle of the Chesapeake and made possible the victory at Yorktown and a battle, a naval battle in which no Americans participated. And Washington was aware of this, you know, you know, he, 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 he didn't he took pride in the ultimate result, but he couldn't necessarily take credit because so much else had to happen for this miracle of a victory to have to occur.
0: Can you get into a little more depth on the Cornwallis error and, and, and everything that led to it after the fact? Because I mean, the British were like, wait, what is happening? Like how, what happened? We lost to the French at sea. Yeah. W- like what,
3: what happened? Well it was you know this had never happened in the history of the world that's an exaggeration but the the british navy were the was the, the the preeminent navy in the world, but the french had were had who had been humiliated during the French and Indian war uh otherwise known as the seven years War had embarked on a program called revanche revenge, and so they had dedicated all of as many of their their um uh, uh, facilities as possible to retooling their, their Navy. And so it was a new Navy. Um, and yet they, you know, it, it, the French were French. They, they baked their bread, uh, and served wine to their, their, their soldiers, you know, very interesting. Uh, while it was rum for the British, very different cultures. And, um, and, and it was still, a a real. You know who knew you know, the fact that the the french were able to pull it off uh surprised everyone uh including but especially the british and especially uh cornwallis who um you know felt that you know this was inconceivable i am going to get out of here one way or not but it didn't happen
0: okay so this is this is good then let's take us now back to the book travels with george and you've got a country that's broke a country that doesn't want to pay the tab for this war, they owe other nations all this money. And as you said at the beginning, like you can understand this independence and no taxation, all this stuff. It's like okay, but somebody has to pay for this. Um, there's soldiers that were owed money, right? I mean, they kept yep. being promised, and and they, you know, it's going on and on and on. How did Washington get this even started on the right track in some of those first days?
3: Yeah, well, um, he the the genius of Washington was in creating his cabinet. And Alexander Hamilton. It was his. What he he realized, along with Washington, was if the British were going, might if they they almost won the revolution not because of their army, but because of their financial system. You know, the, their ability to to um, to you know they had a national bank. Uh, by loaning money, they could uh, you know they could do things that no other country could financially. And so Hamilton decided to use the British model. Um, to create a national bank, to pull together all the states' different debts and make that a national debt. And uh, many states... Such as Virginia that had pretty much paid off their loan, their their wartime loans, thought this was a bad idea, but um, ultimately it was the only way uh, the country was going to emerge from the huge financial hole it had been in because of the revolution. And so Washington, you know, they they, they it's controversial. Initially, George, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was not a fan of Hamilton's, is critical in the the compromise that ultimately allows it to go forward, but he would ultimately uh, regret that he had done it. But once those were in place, there was the economic engine to make this country viable. Um, if, if, you know, Hamilton's, there would, you know, people like Jackson later on would, you know, try to get rid of the bank as would others. But uh, the financial system Hamilton creates is the bedrock really of where we are now um, as, a, as a country. And um, even though you know, Jefferson, who even as he was Washington's secretary of state, began to organize the political resistance, uh, uh, turning the anti-federalists into what would become the Republicans. And so political divisions were happening within Washington's cabinet uh, because what he was doing was very controversial, but without it, um, things just wouldn't have gotten started in the beginning of our country's history
0: the The part that you know is very repetitive. Uh, when when you read about any of this stuff, you know, like, okay, this is the big the big controversy of that year and trying to put together this country is that it's almost like, hey, thanks for winning the war, thanks for getting us, you know, clear of this whole thing. Now we want to go do our whole thing, and that Washington still knew, no, 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 we did this for a purpose. We did this to create a nation. We didn't do this to now have you all do whatever you want because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, do you think there's a moment? during his time that you were able to connect to him having that kind of vision?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, I think it, it happened even before he became president. I think the key moment, um, in Washington's personal history and the history of this country was at the end of the revolution when Washington makes the decision that, you know, the British have evacuated, we've won. Uh, and yet the country is in chaos. 13 independent states that, you know, don't have a clue how they're gonna ever work together. Washington um, decides it's the time is right for me to resign my military commission. Um, And now this had never happened before. At the end of a revolution, the military would just hand over ultimate power to the civil authorities. When uh, King George heard that this was Washington's plan, he was quoted uh, uh, as saying, uh, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world and that's what Washington would do in in uh, um, in Annapolis, where the Continental Congress was huddled ar- around because they were f- they couldn't be in Philadelphia because they were fearful their own military were going to attack them. they had fled to Annapolis. Washington goes there and surrenders his military commission for me that's it that's when that lays the groundwork for everything to come whether it's the constitution the concept of a union by surrendering ultimate power at that key point washington made uh, the united States of america a
0: possibility john adams was the vice president and i correct me here the process was just hey you're the president you didn't have a running mate and then right you know, we just here's the next guy and you have an unbelievable little anecdote which i think Fans of the TV show Veep would appreciate is that Adams like I don't want to go on this awful road trip with right. Washington. I don't yeah. want to do this because he invites him. Um, right. And and I'll interrupt myself here again. These guys from back in these days, they would have been amazing talk show hosts because the hyperbole yeah. that I'm accused of when I'm talking about athletes or teams or any of us in this industry, and I'll watch my friends that are on TV. I'm like, hey, calm down a little bit. These guys would cancel a lunch and you would have thought it was annexing a a nation. You know, it is it is the greatest regret of my life to not have been in Shrewsbury for the date upon which, you know, and you're just like, all you did was say no to lunch, man. Like, this is unbelievable. The language that you you uncover uh, the way these guys spoke to each other is so poetic and it actually, you know, makes sense if you think about the times that carry over in the, in the British background of it all. But Adams basically by saying, no, nah, I'm good. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go on this. This trip is awful. The hospitality is terrible. I'm good. Um, that you kind of plant the seed that maybe that led to yeah. the vice president's position being one of the most useless in all of politics.
3: Which, yes, um, I think, you know. Uh, John Adams was a very different person from Washington. He really did not enjoy public occasions, pressing the flesh. You know, uh, he didn't, you know, he just couldn't stand it. And uh, when he would become president, he would either be in the White House or back home in Braintree, where he um, spent actually as much of the presidency as anywhere. He just didn't enjoy other people. And so Washington says, I'm going on a tour of New England. Uh, you're the vice president, you're from New England, why don't you come with me? And he said, nah, I, 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 that's all right, you know, go ahead. And um, and then, su- surprise, surprise, uh, Washington, after that, has very little need to consult John Adams. And as John Adams would lament uh, in a few years' time, he said, the vice presidency is the most insignificant political office ever created by man. And well, dude, you did it to yourself. (laughs) <laughs> you go. You might not enjoy yourself, but get in the carriage and and have a few uh, you know rubber chicken dinners with George Washington. You know, but um, but no, I think uh, you know it, it's 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 vice presidents have have changed a little bit recently. But up until then, you know, look at Harry Truman, completely ignored uh, under FDR. And uh, I think Washington created many precedents. And thanks to John uh, Adams' unwillingness to to go on a, a carriage ride uh, created the the insignificancy of the vice presidency. Um, this was a departure for what you normally do, the first person
0: part of it that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this this was a grind for you too. I, I felt for you when you got sick in New York at the train station <laughs> and, and people were wondering, <laughs> is, it get, yeah. is it getting to them? Um, but, you know, this is your passion. This is something you love. And to see these spots, is, is there a moment that you take from this journey that, stands out more than all the others.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to say it was so much fun. Uh, uh my wife, Melissa and I look back with great nostalgia on it. It was, hard work i mean you know a lot of re- i i reached out to all the libraries and historical societies in each town washington visited more you know hunt more than almost 200 of those and um and then we you know talked to people interviewed people all all the way around i got really sick at one point and uh, you know had ended up in the hospital um we almost died in a tornado while sailing off the coast of your island, Martha's Vineyard. Um, you know, things happened. Uh, but I have to say the moment that sort of um, brought it home to me when it came to George Washington, because there were these times where you just felt like you were standing in a historical vortex, you know. Um, and we, we, were, we went to Hampton Plantation in South Carolina. Uh, we were on our way to Charleston. This is a, a magnificent plantation uh, that is now owned by the state. The state. And uh, right in front of this Greek temple of a porch is this, this live oak, this huge tree. And according to uh, a tradition that has been verified, uh, that porch had been built just before Washington's arrival on his Southern tour. And the owner of, of the uh, plantation uh, uh, a widowed woman uh, says to Washington as he comes up the steps, you know, thank you for coming here. Um, you know, with this new porch, I think I'm gonna have to get rid of this this big tree. Um, and Washington looks at the tree and remember, according to Parson Weems, Washington was the one who chopped down his father's cherry tree. In this instance, Washington looks at this this tree and says, ma'am, uh, you know, there is uh, a tree as beautiful as that. No man can, can uh, uh, replicate, keep it. It's there to this day this monster live Oak right next to the, you know, the, the porch, this is, you know, yes, there's the Washington monument, but I would say this live Oak, uh, you know, next to a porch and a plantation in South Carolina is, you know, a living monument to, to George Washington's, uh, trips across the, this, this country. And it was just amazing to see it. Okay. Travels with George,
0: Nathaniel Philbrick. I have to ask you a, a quick little Mayflower thing. I mean, I could yep. do this again for an hour. I, I mean, I'm not even going to get to my my other stuff here. I wrote out all these notes. Like, hey, this guy's got a life. You can't you can't make him sit in front of a computer all day today. Um, this is
3: no. I'm enjoying this too. So <laughs> okay,
0: I I may have to do another a Mayflower with one separately. But I can you because I didn't learn this one in school. And your intro into that book is is just brilliant, the execution of it all. is It's like amazing storytelling, and that's why I've always enjoyed your stuff so much. Um, give us a sense of the boat, the boat yeah. itself, just trying to figure out when it's going to anchor and how long that went on and the the tragedy of trying to find the best entry point into the new world in 1620.
3: Yeah, it was a hell ship. It, it was the, uh, there were 102 passengers, on the Mayflower. You know, they it was uh, the worst passage you could have. You know, she averaged uh, between one and two miles an hour, uh, making her way across the Atlantic. And uh, they were supposed to go to New York. Um, that was their intended uh, destination. But instead of uh, coming up on Manhattan, they came up up on Cape Cod, uh, you know, just think that the pilgrims could have, could have been Yankee fans. Um, but, um, and so they're way off course, uh, the captain says, okay, we better head South. He heads into Pollock rip, which is still today. One of the most dangerous pieces of shoal water on the planet, literally, and almost lose the ship. Everyone is absolutely terrified uh, because the tide changed. They somehow get out of there. Captain says, uh, uh-uh. uh, you know, I'm getting you guys off this ship. You're going to have to, you know, somewhere on Cape Cod, that's where I'm going to leave you. They go berserk because they don't have permission from the crown to go there. Those that not everyone was on the same page with the pilgrims. About half of them were what the pilgrims called strangers who did not believe in kind of the radical Puritan beliefs they had. They hear this, we're going to go, we're going to leave you guys. And if they did that, they'd all die because they weren't working cooperatively. So they. They come up with the Mayflower Compact, Um, you know, one of the, I think, one of the most important political documents ever created, where they say civil government is going to rule us. It's not going to be a cult. (laughs) It's going to be two different peoples working cooperatively. They get to the Cape. They need to have uh, if they're going to establish a, a beachhead somewhere, it needs to be a near a navigable river. But there are no navigable rivers on the Cape, but they don't have any legitimate maps of the Cape. They they waste a month wandering the sands of Cape Cod um, you know, in the late fall, early winter, uh uh angering the Native Americans, um, which is come, gonna come back to haunt them. Finally, they find uh, uh what will be, They will call Plymouth Harbor, uh, where the only the the one of the great advantages of it was that there were no trees. It had been cleared for agriculture because two years before a terrible plague had hit the native peoples. There used to be two thousand people, uh, Wampanoags, living uh, at at Plymouth, but this terrible disease had wiped out everyone. Uh, bones littering uh, the ground. Those that had survived had fled. And so this is where the pilgrims decide we are going to plant a new plantation, and you know it's winter; it's the worst of times. Half of them would die uh, that first winter. Didn't didn't you say that by the time they anchored? Now,
0: like, how long was it from we not were not going to New York to okay, get off the ship?
3: How long was that time period? Because that was well, wasn't that months? Uh, well, initially, it was uh, we almost die um, off off Cape Cod. And then it was, you need to get off the ship. And they say, well, first we need to find a place. And so that's a couple of months, that's a month basically. So think
0: about that. Just you're, you think you finally reached the new world and actually you're going to be on a boat for another month as we argue about where to go.
3: Right. And, and a few, you know, and, and a few, there would be a a search party, you know, looking for a place in a, a, in a little open boat called a shallop. And you know, the, 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 the spray from the ocean would freeze on them. It was that cold. Um, you know, it was just miserable conditions. You know, finally they, they find Plymouth Plantation, the Mayflower sails from what's now Provincetown to Plymouth Harbor. Uh, they offload everybody and, you know, build by, I think it was Christmas day, they, they'd start building uh, their first their first structure and then over the course of the next two months, close to half of them would die of disease, and uh, you know somehow they would make it to the other to spring. And if the if the Wampanoags had decided to wipe them out, they easily could have. But Massasoit, uh, the the native leader, uh, his people had been um, ravaged by disease. Their the rival Narragansetts had not been touched. Uh, he was fearful of you know they were had be, they were going to be taken over by the Narragansetts unless an alliance with this pitiful group of Englishmen might give him the parody he needed. And so thus was born uh, the alliance that would save Plymouth Colony and, uh, you know, set set the stage for, you know, what would transpire for the next couple of hundred years. Yeah, because that, I thought, was one of the most interesting things about
0: Mayflower is that you go through it and you're like, hey, look, what happened? Horrible. You wiped out, you basically erased people from their country, but then you're like, wait, part of the Alliance was in fear of the other warring tribes being like, yeah, but they're trying to do the same thing to us. And so you were like, oh, wait, like there's, I think at times there's this, this image of this harmonious world. And you were like, no, it was a a warring world as well. It's just, you brought in new people with disease and clearly a dehumanizing approach to the native people. That was, was something that they weren't, weren't, you know, dealing with as far as their own culture. Um, Last thought, because this is this is the last thought because I loved it. So they're at Plymouth. It's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Um, they've been there a while. I forget how many years if it was a couple years or less than two years, some guys decided to start like walking north and they reach Boston. Yeah. And and they go, Oh, this is way better. (laughs) The harbor is perfect. There's this massive river. We could bring in all sorts of infrastructure. And it was just like, you know, what are you supposed to do? It's 1620. You're supposed to like, hey, let's find a better spot after everything they went through. And the way you describe almost a general disappointment where they come back to the setup and they're like, hey, there's a spot that's not that far from here. That's (laughs) like a 100 times better than where we're starting this nation do you guys want to go there instead? And just, there was a division that, and other people were like, you know what? It's way better up there. And that's why Plymouth isn't Boston.
3: Yeah. Is is that fair? Uh, That's fair. And, you know, of course, 10 years later, uh, the Puritans uh, would arrive with John Winthrop, create the city on the Hill known as Boston. And, uh, you know, quickly take over New England, and Plymouth would become you know this little sort of sideshow, and uh, because hey, location, location, um, you know. And I, but I think to this day, uh, I I find it's a very different uh, uh, people to the on the North Shore of Boston are very different from people on the South Shore. And I tell you, it goes way back. Um, you know, it's, it was the declasse pilgrims, <laughs> um, <laughs> versus the, the, you know, the lockjaw Puritans. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's that it, that kind of difference was there, uh, from the beginning. And so that's what I find fascinating about history. Um, you know, uh, we're all, you know, we, we grow up under the illusion that we're sort of, you know, this is the reality of life where we're living but things happened way before us um that that set humanity on a path that we are just uh, participants in we are not you know the, the sense that we have some control of our destiny i think is is an illusion um and and the one thing history has taught me is uh you know i don't i can't say you honestly you learn from the past but it doesn't help you in the present uh because uh the, the the present will always be impossible. Uh you know, you're making it up as you go along. You're be you're conflicted between self-interest and altruism. You know, in a hundred years they're gonna laugh at us and say or or say, what the hell were they thinking? Just as we look back on the pilgrims and George Washington and say, what the hell were they thinking? It's really hard <laughs> living life. And uh the example of the past I think can only teach us humility. Um because no one had it figured out um and uh, we're all just making it up now it's it's
0: beautifully said i, I don't think i'm going to say anything beyond that because every time i go back and i read one of your books i'll read somebody else's and i'll, I'll enter this world for 400 pages and you go this isn't that different from the stuff we're arguing about now I mean, we have technology we have these advancements we have medicine we have all these things but like the mindset the north shore south Shore thing. Is so real today, and then the Rita Mayflower, and you're like, "Oh, okay, this is exactly how it started." And it's you know, I mean, it's we've been around a long time, but not so long that we're talking about that many generations removed. If you're if you really start thinking about the math of it, how many generations it would be from the the place, the first places in this country, and where they were set up. And I always thought it was funny too, because you know, as a kid, you're like, "How come Boston wasn't the capital? Like, how come New York became New York?" Well, New York became New York geographically; it made more sense. Mm -hmm. But then Philadelphia has this run. And whenever it would be like, oh, people were afraid if you made the capital in Boston and gave Massachusetts more power than it already had um, historically, that there was a fear that the Massachusetts people would just be like, you know what? Fuck
3: this. Anyway, we're just going to do our
0: own thing. Yeah. <laughs> they were so, just like
3: those guys. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they had been, you know, the so-called Indian fighters from the beginning uh, and created the, the, the local militia of New England was completely different from Pennsylvania, for example, that really didn't have a local militia. You know, so you have all of these cultural differences that, you know, uh, the states are, you know, we are all part of this one country, but um, differences persist. And, um, you know, and it's those differences and commonalities that um, uh, fascinate me.
0: Couldn't tell you any more than I already have uh, to express my, my gratitude for your time today and for decades of work on stuff that a lot of us are very passionate about. And uh, we can't wait to see what's next, man. So hopefully we get to do this again. So thank you.
3: Oh, it's been a great pleasure.
0: This episode of the Ryan Rosilla podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's french fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's, unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required.
0: Life Advice, rr at gmail.com. Hope everybody has a Merry Christmas. That celebrates this week. And we got Kyle, we got Steve, as always. So I want to make sure we gave you a full pod here before the week lets out. Kyle, uh, just a quick update. Whatever, wherever you want to go, we know we had a a Ringer Spotify celebration with a couple employees last night, and we got a couple texts from you, and uh, we appreciate you spirit award for you getting up this early. Um, th- it just felt like it was a it was a midweek frolic room attendance. is what it sounds like, right? That yeah, we totally. Well,
4: night. yeah, well, yesterday was a big. It was back to back day. I had to cover a Bill Pod. I had to cover a. Um, Uh, Rewatchables, shout out to Craig. Um, Also, congrats to Craig. I guess uh, it doesn't suck so bad that I had to work for you yesterday because you got engaged, congrats buddy. Using your vacation time well. Uh, But so basically I just ran through some stuff um, and then I had two other things I was working on. It just seemed like an absolute marathon. Then I looked up and I was like, oh, I haven't haven't moved from the seat, but it's only three o'clock, I'm out of here. So I just, three o'clock frolic room.
0: Three o'clock. Oh, okay, so you were either that was a that was a long shift, or you got out of there early. You look fine, by the way. You sound great. So thanks. I don't even, yeah, I don't think it's any any, but you were DJing and they weren't loving what you were doing because you were in the zone.
4: Well, I kept it going. I kept it early. I try to do. I look around. And I'm like, all right. There's guys in denim and they're old and their hats are older than me. So I'll like, I'll, I'll put. What would you do? Some, what would you do if like, you see that? Uh, like Led Zeppelin. Uh, I'll put on like um, I don't. I don't know. I kind of have. I have my things. I'll throw a couple Billy Joel in there because a big fan of Billy Joel. I'll throw some um maybe Ozzy, maybe just Ozzy. Some guy requested some Dio, so I was like, all right, you, you pick Ronnie the song, James, dude. yeah. yeah. I was like, you pick the song. Wait, dude. so these That's guys fine. are
5: going to you with requests? They're like, Kyle, put this on. The, song the guys me. who have
4: been there, the guys who have been there long enough. uh Well, who's seen me there enough? Been there long enough? Like these guys have all been here forever um they know that i'm the guy that like oh yeah he's doing it now he's doing his thing and then when those guys kind of trickle out and sometimes when the um the, the there's a big theater right there the pantages which is running hamilton so it's still a pretty big deal and every once in a while just intermission or the pre-show or the post-show it just gets flooded this bar with like 30 seats just gets flooded with like 100 people and then i'll be like all right it's time for g unit Or like, it's time for, (laughs) it's time for little John act a fool. (laughs) Like, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's always somewhere, somewhere mid two thousands, you know, 2012 at the latest. But, um, yeah, I try to keep it respectful until it just gets chaos. And then I'm like, yeah, I don't really care what you guys say about me now. Is your girlfriend with you? No, she doesn't actually like the bar so much. And that's actually perfect. Yeah. That, that kind of works out. It's perfect. So, Hey, look, being a DJ is tough.
0: You can't please everybody. You know, it's like being a politician
5: no i agree lying. it's a lot of pressure yeah. but you kind of know the vibes and like the ebbs and flows and you look at who people are coming in like what music they think i just consider some like old dude walking in and he's like kyle play stairway to heaven and then she, i guy's like all right got it Here we go. <laughs>
4: um no i've i've actually learned a lot of stuff there there's what one of the good songs this dude fella kuti who's uh african dude and um he plays like 13 minute songs but some of the like there's like some good stretches, but I'll, every once in a while, I'll forget. I'm not supposed to play that. And then I play like a 13 minute song and they're like, dude, really? So they do have a skip button. Sometimes they skip stuff and, uh, they'll override you. They have an override. And I played, I dumped like $20 in and played like 35 credits worth of hip hop. And they skipped the first song. And I was like, it's gonna, You're gonna have to skip a lot. And then I left. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I played like, I played like, uh, it, we got through like seven songs that i was like you're gonna have to keep skipping if you want like do whatever you want i'm out of here guys um so i don't know there was like probably an hour of uh of of uh classic 2000s hip-hop after i left so who knows what happened
0: yeah we used to do that at at laundromats we didn't even use any of the services we would just go in drop five bucks in the jukebox turn it all the way up just the worst stuff and leave oh like achy achy breaky heart i don't know why we thought that was so funny but boy (laughs) did we laugh when we got in the car um yeah, thirteen minutes. A little Hallelujah, Chicken Run band, perhaps in there. Some of that, uh, maybe that's probably not in the in the jukebox. The best mm-hmm. one is Mountain Jam. Like if you can ever find a jukebox, they don't have it very often. But if you can pull off Mountain Jam, because then people kind of look around for a while, like, is this song been on for twenty minutes? You're like, actually thirty, <laughs> actually thirty eight. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. I know it's happened once, so I don't feel like I'm making that up. I know it happened in a car once. And somebody was like, wait, what the hell's going on? The song, the song keeps going. All right, uh, let's get to life advice. We've got a few, um, diff- we got some follow-ups here. You know what? The moving story, this is so vicious and nasty that I, I'm just going to read it because I, I, I chuckled. Um, hey guys, uh, the story of the guy who moved his girlfriend to Iowa from Virginia only to break up. and Said girlfriend reminded me of a story 20 years ago. My stepsister had gone from Ohio to USC for college and met a guy there. They got engaged while still in school and both graduated. He, being from Virginia, needed to move his college belongings back to his parents' house while she was going to bring big things to Ohio. He rented a truck, packed it up, and the two of them set off east, ready to soon start their life together. Truck arrives in Ohio. He unpacks her things with her and is ready to go to Virginia with his things when she hands him the ring, dumps him on the spot. You can't say the girl wasn't resourceful. Quite a long con, if you ask me. Free moving. Merry Christmas. That probably wasn't a great day for that guy. Um, but what you can do is probably go, if she's capable of doing something like this, then this means it's not somebody that I would want to be with. But what a piece of shit. I mean, there's also that part of it, too. It's like, you know what? You really free moving, him driving your stuff, unpacking unpa- and unpacking. It's like, oh, by the way, now I'm going to dump you. The, the People you like be able that. to sue for that. Yeah. No. There should be common sense court. And throw out all the laws and you just go, I don't know who the judge would be. Maybe me. Because Judy. Yeah. And you just go, hey, you suck. Like, don't do that to that guy. (laughs) You have to pay 51% of the moving costs plus gas. Um, I'm surprised she didn't sell the ring. Okay. All right. Uh, We had a few, you know, the follow-up stuff again. Oh, yeah. We had this uh, Ryan and fraternities. As an Indian dude, I don't understand how frats work. I didn't know that. Um, But it sounds like Ryan ran (laughs) his into the ground. Clarification on that timeline, just so people understand, I was out of school at that point. Uh, I still lived in the town. Um, I wasn't exactly Captain Late Night, even though thinking of it age-wise to be 23 and still be in the town, it wouldn't have been the worst thing. Um, But I didn't do it really very often. Um and it got shut down I think that winter anyway. So I wasn't even involved with it. I wasn't living there. I was still living in the town though, so slightly different, but I wanted to clear that up. Um because I didn't leave until I left for Trenton. And school wise, I've told this story before. Graduated by playing badminton, testing out of badminton. Um I've told that story before on the pod,
4: I think. I so, think so. I've heard badminton, I don't remember why. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, Saruti knows it. And whenever I see the Saruti kind of alert go off being like, dude, you told us, you told us, don't tell it again. Although the audience has grown quite a bit in the last year. So maybe we'll uh, we'll tell that story another time. Okay. uh, Let's do one more follow up. Um, He was talking about us talking about the climbing stuff, the two Netflix shows that are out. The Marc Andre one, I think is a little bit older though, isn't it? yeah i don't, I don't, think I don't that's know new. yeah
5: but i stumbled upon that like surf you know surfing what is it on is it on netflix yeah the guy was just like casually broke that other dude's record out of yeah. nowhere it was yeah. wa- it, so i haven't watched it yet but i'm actually going to go circle back on that because it was actually a great trailer
0: the trailer's pr- uh terrific I, i've watched the trailer over and over again because this is really professional like alex is the amazing climber everybody knows in the community being like, yeah, this guy, Marc-Andre, Like, I tell stories about him all day long. And at first you're like, ah, is this guy really... And then you watch the movie and you go, this Marc-Andre guy was incredible. Okay, um, climbing. Love the podcast. My name's... Well, we'll leave the name out just to... Whatever. Um, we'll just say Kevin. How about that? And he lives in Kamloops, BC. That's uh, British Columbia, Canada. I don't know how... I don't feel super confident, but it's end of the week. We'll be all right. Okay. Owns my own business uh, that involves climbing trees instead of rocks. I haven't lifted since I started doing tree work, but I'm 5'10, 215, a little softer now that I run the business, but I'm in great tree work shape. You're probably in the best tree work shape of almost anybody walking around if you're climbing trees. Think of lifting, twisting, and uh, (laughs) think of lifting and twisting heavy things or heaving heavy things in the worst possible way for your body eight hours a day. Uh, I hope you own that company, dude. Yeah, I digress. I stopped rock climbing when I started doing tree work, but there are a lot of similarities. I have rock climbed and tree climbed with every body type, so if you think you're too bulky or anything like that, it doesn't matter. It's all about the legs. Trusting your feet, core balance. Uh, yes, upper body helps, but if you're in a tree for six hours straight or climbing a cliff, I would rather trust my legs than my arms. Great core strength is needed for both. The spurs on your feet definitely help for trees. Uh, fuck those spurless climber geeks. You know what? I don't want to get involved in this. I don't want to get involved in a spur spurless tree thing i i I defer to you you clearly are a badass if you climb trees all day and then chuck logs all over the place um although many of us would like to think we're capable of those physical tests a lot of us would not make it through the eight hour day and you have trained your body to deal with this as such i think that's incredible Uh, as far as me if climbing obviously i'd be a free climber because i would have so that's why i'm not going to do it you know ropes dude come on
5: what kind of trees Uh, are we talking redwoods like i don't even i don't
0: just trees i gotta come down Douglas first, I'm going to guess Douglas first, but I, I have, I have no idea. Okay. Let's, uh, let's stop with the follow-ups. I went too long on that. Okay. Plain seat change request life advice. This is a good one. It's very good one. This guy even put it. He inserted a chart into the email, too. And it's it's terrific work. Okay, measurables. He went deep on this, too. Fuck it. 30 years old, 6'2". He spurted 5'10 to 6'2", senior year of high school. That's great. We do not now need growth spurt data, but we appreciate it. Uh, 195 type
5: growth spurt, dude. Don't worry. You did. Not, you jumped yeah. four four inches senior year. It was actually more. My, I believe it was my sophomore into junior year. I was five. No, maybe it was my freshman into sophomore. I was five one and went up to about five seven, five eight, and now I'm five ten. So it was a quite. It's quite the spur. I looked like I was about seven, and then looked like I was about twelve in high school. Late bloom. Don't
0: don't be mad about looking young, because when you're <laughs> forty and people think you're thirty. You know, in case you get divorced or anything, that's going to work in your favor. Not that I, I meant just vaguely, not you <laughs> nice. specifically. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> all right. Gross spurt talk. Bench max squat. Not great. Um, we'll just leave it out. He used to run the mile. Okay, cool. Big fan of the show. Uh, would like your advice on the situation I experienced on a two-hour Spirit Airlines flight last week. Did you, oh, boy. Here we go. did you blow your brains out and still email us? <laughs> that's a ringing endorsement probably not going to be a sponsor so we'll just keep it moving all right um I i'm a reasonably like we're still trying to get back to pretzels bro ads uh yeah so anybody who's taking spirit that is in itself uh i think that's the final night of hazing for a lot of fraternities uh to to mix in the content here reasonably tall guys you mentioned 6'2, that gross bird man yeah all right uh i like getting an aisle seat it was a two by two plane so two seats two seats right aisle down the middle um with seats a and d and b and c all right we got it so 14 a is a window actually i don't need all this information most of us have been on planes we can figure it out so he was assigned 14 b He's, he's very technical, so i got to give it to him. So 14B is the aisle to the left side. 14A, 14B, aisle, and then got C, it. and then D. Okay. All right. <laughs> we should just cut out all of this and start over, but we're not going to. I was pretty happy I got 14B. Worth clarifying, I did not pay to pick a seat with Spirit, but was randomly uh, assigned the seat. I boarded the plane, got to my seat, pulled up my he- headphones, started listening to a podcast, likely life advice. I was pretty comfortable in my seat when a few minutes later a lady in her mid-30s approached me Uh with what must have been her mom in her early 60s behind her, she said something to the effect of, hi, would you mind switching seats with me? I'm in 24D. All right, deep in it. So we're talking further back 10 rows, window seat. Um, So she's like, I'm in 24D. My mom is sitting next to you. Kyle already says no. Sitting next to you in 14A, I'd like to sit next to her. She said in a pretty assumptive way. Below is a diagram. All right, we've got that. To be entirely honest, I didn't have any interest to switching seats to 24D. I really don't like the window seats. I needed to deplane quickly to make it to an event when I landed. So, wait, you didn't have a connecting flight, but you had to make it to an event? You're still at the mercy of a lot of other things there, but we're we're still on your side here. So, I figured that moving from 14 to 24 would set me back about five or six minutes when we landed. This guy's pretty technical, so actually I could see him kind of almost being down to the minute. This is like Royal Royal Tenenbaums where they're they're testing themselves. Ben Stiller's like our our fire and rescue times are still too slow. All right, uh, I wasn't a big fan of the way she asked. It was um, anyway. We already covered that. I was more able-bodied than either of them, so I said, sure, got out of my seat, got my bag, out of the overhead compartment, and then went back to 24D. The flight was fine, I guess, although I was slightly less comfortable in the window seat than I would have been in an aisle seat. The way I saw it, there were three ways I could have handled the situation. Politely apologize and say I needed 14B because I needed a plane quickly and preferred an aisle seat. Two, I could ask her if she'd keep her seat in 24D and ask whoever was in C if they wanted to come up to 14A. Where the lady's mom's ticket was. Three, agree to switch and trust that someday someone will pay it forward when I have a similar situation. They probably won't. All right. Uh, I chose option three. So he switched seats. Um two hours. Here's here. I would my rule is pretty simple. Um, if it's a kid, I'll switch the seat. You know, when somebody's like, hey, my kid, he's sitting in the in this seat, and I want to sit next to my kid. You got to be an asshole to go, no, I want your kid to sit next to strangers while his mom is four rows away. Sorry. Like, <laughs> you got to be. Now, if we're going seven hours to Europe and you pick the aisle, because there's, there's also times, too, I'm convinced of this. People book it a certain fucked up way, knowing they're going to try to guilt you with yeah. some deal, especially. So there are no middle seats on this flight, because if somebody comes to me wanting to trade a middle for an aisle or a window and it's like, oh, my friend, you're like, peace beat it um the mom <laughs> thing you know more more inclined to be sympathetic a lot of it is how do you ask if this person was a little pushy and just assumed that everything was going to go away i could understand how that would be a turnoff so my rule is pretty consistent i will do almost anything for a kid um but there are, you know you just see a lot of people do stuff we know they're full of shit too like my favorite is the guy with the window seat or the guy with the aisle nobody pulls like you got to have some stones to do it if you have a middle so three on one side i've got window i used to be an aisle guy now i'm a window guy don't know what that means but it's just kind of the move now um and you'll see the aisle guy sitting in your window seat and then you walk up and you're like hey you know i'm in there and the guy's like oh well i could just stay here if you want the aisle and you're like what am i an asshole?" Like, I know what you're doing. You wanted the window. You didn't get it. And now you think you're doing me some sort of favor. And then it turns out, like, I, I hate in general when people are kind of like, they get the better end of the deal or they're getting something they prefer, but they act like they're doing you the favor. Um, So, you know, it's just like, no, beat it. Like, I'll I'll get almost rude with that one. You're just like, oh, really? That's how the transaction is going to work. And then every now and then there'll be kind of like a pushy situation where it's like, hey, is there any way you can have yours? And you're like, what, what do you got? What do you got? Like, oh, you know, I'm I'm 37B middle. Like, oh, really for fucking 10A? You know. <laughs> <laughs> like, do, you, do you have any cash on you? You know, so my rule is is always um kids over everything else and then adjust accordingly. Kyle?
3: No. Kids, Nothing. yeah.
4: You got to be a kid. Um you got to be uh an army uh current current army guy going somewhere that sucks or you got to have, huh? have a doctor's note it's going to be absolutely nothing for any of those i've said no many times many times give me your best it. no give me your best no that went no like, i'm i'm t- I'm tall this guy's already digging into my knees i'm gonna be fighting him all day i need dial that's why i do this paid extra money for the aisle it's easy i just treat it like somebody's asked me for a cigarette no you say no to people yeah. for a cigarette yeah all the time because i don't ask people for cigarettes so huh okay you've never asked somebody for a cigarette no i do i do but i can see when a guy's like just walk like i could just tell when it's like you do this every day rather than like oh shit uh do you have any i think i just like that's like i get it i get it i mean you should just be looking for a store pal they're everywhere but um i get it um but if it's a guy who's just like coming and he's just you know looking for guys who have cigarettes in their hands it's like well fuck you no
5: your fraud alert is very high on that yeah.
4: exactly exactly yeah. so most times unless it's a kid pretty much um you know because the the army guys are way too proud to even ask they just wait for somebody to say it for them but um yeah if it's just a, like somebody especially if it's like a couple it's like oh, could i sit next to my girlfriend fuck you no you can't you should have bought your tickets together
5: yeah i wouldn't even ask to be honest with you like if my wife and i like weren't able to sit next to each other on a plane and Deal she was like guy. hey could you, could you ask this person if he could switch i'd be like no like I'm not, like this, we bought, we bought, we bought our seats and I'm going to, I'm going to, these are the consequences I have to pay. So I would just be uncomfortable on myself. Now, like. so wait, if you were flying
0: <laughs> to Hawaii with your wife, all right. Well, no, and, that,
5: that's and, a different story.
0: And there was an opportunity to ask. You wouldn't ask. You would just go, no, we're not sitting next to each other. You'd be like, I would just
5: accept <laughs> my place. I mean, most likely. Yes. I mean, listen, if it's, if it's a seven out, well, I guess it would be like a, 10 11 hour flight to hawaii because we went there on our honeymoon if we didn't buy seats next to each other like that's on us that's also not on what are you else. doing then yeah i mean so like yeah i can't i'm not gonna ask yeah but someone... sometimes
0: look sometimes there's there's no two seats next to each other you don't know that i mean it could happen but so we if know that had... going
5: in like we bought the seats there weren't any available it's a 11 hour flight from new york to hawaii like i'm not gonna ask somebody to change seats that's not fair what is if... it's like an,
0: what if you both had windows? What if you're rows away, you're in a window, your wife's in a window, and you go to the guy in the middle, and you're like, "Hey, do you want a window seat so I can sit next, to my, sit next to my wife?" It's our honeymoon. You wouldn't even do that. I mean, you're honestly, actually, in,
5: in that case, I might. I don't want to sit in the middle, so I might be like, "Hey, sorry, <laughs> like, we bought these. <laughs> we tickets." Like, <laughs> you know, it actually it actually does suck though because I'm an incredibly generous husband, and whenever we fly. So our we had, so as I said we went to Hawaii on our honeymoon which was awesome but it was it was a four it was a two four two plane yeah so dude we, we know two, and we were good like the two was great but like most flights are three and three right so right. I'm always stuck in the middle because she doesn't want to sit in the middle I'm in I'm in uh I'm a window guy just like you Ryan like I'd rather sit in the window than an aisle but I'm always stuck in the middle because she likes to sit on the aisle so I'm always in the middle so if there's an opportunity for me to sit in, an, in a window seat or an aisle seat by myself and not have to <laughs> ask somebody and have the awkward you know conversation <laughs> with somebody I'm gonna take it.
4: I agree. Accept your fate.
0: Whenever it's kind of like, you know, some, it's two friends, right? And so she'll be, the friend is in the middle, then it's another stranger in the aisle. I'm in the window. And then I I would, I would tell you more often than not, they're not going to ask me to look at me and be like, I wouldn't ask that guy.
5: Um, (laughs) That is true. You could really like judge like whether or not someone's going (laughs) to be likely to say yes or no. And you're definitely a hard no guy.
0: Yeah. And so, but it'll be like, Girls that are sophomores in college and they're flying somewhere. I love that. Really. There, I love. Is there saying any no way? Is there any way you would switch so I could sit next to my friend? Like what? So you could talk about boys? <laughs> 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 like, wait, you want me to give up a window for a middle because you guys are friends? Like, if you're that close, you're gonna see each other. So you're gonna spend time as soon as we land. Like, you get through this. You get through this. Fucking watch Aquaman, and they've you know.
4: got seat to seat messaging almost everywhere.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. play some. Play some Candy Crush. (laughs) Watch Aquaman. Eat your pretzels and fuck off. All right. I think we covered that. I think we covered that. Um, Okay. Last one here. Because this one... Actually, we can can slide another quick one here. 30 years old, 6 feet 205, fantasy football league with 12 close friends from college. Um, We're all spread across the country now, but we've made it a yearly tradition to get together for a guy's weekend centered around the fantasy draft. We've made it uh, where the winner from the previous season gets to choose the draft destination. This year, one of the guys in the finals wants to go to Disney World as as his choice if he wins. Uh, This plays in well off the Sarah Walsh interview. As you know, the stat is I went, I believe, six times, five times for draft camp stuff, and then the sixth is for the name of the story that I told earlier. My question is, the guy who has rocked the solo Disney trip before, do you think it's weird for 12, 30-year-old Disney? Dude, some fathers now to go party in Disney World for the weekend. I think this is one of the single worst ideas I've ever heard. Um, I cannot express it. There's no middle ground. I don't want to hear any explanation. There's not a the part of this I don't understand. This is the dumbest fucking idea I've ever heard. I didn't want to be there by myself, Disney World. Dude, I sat Benny Hanna with like three newlywed couples, I think. <laughs> and honestly, like one of the wives was digging me way more than the guy she just married. And it was super fucking uncomfortable because they were, not that I'm so hot, they were pretty Standard, and um, they were wasted, and they were having a blast, and then it kind of got like a little flirty and weird, and, and I was just like, hey, I'm I'm fine being by myself, guy, um, as much as I have been, but that wasn't that is not the deal. So then you're thinking, well, it's the it's even worse. Like there's going to be all sorts of alerts on these guys. Twelve hammer dudes running through Disney World without a kid or a wife to be seen. This is one of the worst social gathering ideas I've ever heard. we go and, to
4: Six Flags instead.
0: Or don't go to a mute. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it's I think it's terrible. It's just weird, man. Like when I was there by myself and I'd sit at the pool or something and read a book before the next thing that I had to be for work wise, people are looking at you going, who's the who's the man that's just here by himself reading a fucking book? Like, what a weird. Oh, there he is again. So don't do
5: it. Um, And 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 it's expensive. I mean, you can go, you know. Night at Disney, a couple nights at Disney, it's like a ton of money. You can go somewhere probably way cooler. at uh, always for like the scene of guys that you have, um not even Vegas, any anywhere. So I, I don't understand it from a cost benefit standpoint and from just like a hanging out standpoint.
4: Yeah, I, I'm again. I don't think we need to add This might be the end of that rule. They might This might be the end of that rule. It's like, <laughs> I'd be ah, furious. We're not
0: I, I'd be furious. I mean, we used to have a golf thing that guys are really good about all getting together and then one year um you know Guys did, guys did Atlanta because it was close to like where a guy lived, and he organized it, and it worked out fine. I think another year was San Diego. Another year was Vegas. And then one guy won it, and then he picked Biloxi, Mississippi. And people were like, what the fuck? And honestly, everybody was still young and dumb enough that they just went along with it. Guys still talk about it. It's been 20 years. and did you just talk like, about
4: the disaster of Biloxi?
0: Yeah, <laughs> that they were like, you, of all the destinations, you picked that one because you was heard – He'd heard from like one other guy that it was actually <laughs> awesome and underrated. So then 20 guys. Now, at that point, like after the first couple, I was so broke that I couldn't even afford to go on it. So I missed it altogether. So I didn't Aww. have to go. Um, no, I'm serious. I just, you know, there's was, there's was some lean years there. We've talked about it, but uh, they the guys still talk about it. Like just one guy who won the tournament decided, all right, I'm going to do something a little different. We're going to switch it up. We're going to go to Biloxi. And as it was happening, people were like, what the fuck? And granted, if it had been when everybody was about 30, you know, a little bit more experience, the more seasoning, mm. there would have been a revolt. But I guess guys who are just young enough. They're like, all right, we'll check it out. And then I ask guys, like, how was it? And like, "Ah, we just golf. But it wasn't like when you still could go to Vegas. I don't know, again, or go to just Chicago or something. And then you're staying in the city. Um, you know, another thing, too, that you'll do because of tea times and all that stuff when you're young and you do those golf trips, is like, hey, seven, a.m. tea time. And you're just like, no, stop nothing before nine nothing nothing before nine um you know we did colorado uh which was brutal for a couple guys who stayed up the entire night um and then just got right on the golf fan and we were like how long are these guys gonna last today Mm -hmm. um and i've had a couple of those too, where you know you're teeing off and you're going all right don't know how i'm gonna feel hole 12 (laughs) all right uh last thing here it's not your fault maddie um Six six two ten, elite rowing machine. Mormon, one wife. Checking in. Okay, <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Um, Good sense of humor about it. Yeah, yeah. Right. He said it, not us. Um, he's referencing something here that's ten years old. Maybe shoot. It could be twelve. I forget the year. It's Matt Damon promoting Invictus uh, on SVP when it wasn't SVP and Russilla. It was the Scott Van Pelt show. And he wanted to ask about that. Uh, the reason I'm reading this email is, is that I will admit that's probably one of the five proudest moments I've ever had in my career, pulling that off and getting Matt Damon to laugh. I don't know. So if we can ever find a link to that again, I don't know. I don't know I if just, you're,
5: I just shot a Google. We'll see if we can see what, uh, what uh, comes up, but it's going to be hard.
0: Yeah, I don't. Cause I think I looked for it once before because people were asking for it. So again, the question is this when, uh, Rosillo said, it's not your fault, Matty to Matt Damon. Um, it was a perfect sports media moment so that I can reach that level in my job. Can Russillo walk us through what was going through his head and how he executed so perfectly? I want to take those principles and apply them in my life. All right, so I think anybody that's listened to me for uh, that long will know that every now and then I'll take a swing and I know the chances of it working are like less than 10%. And sometimes I'll bomb. You know, when we tried with Nate Argozzi, the, the that bomb yeah. is, and he he wasn't fun about it at all. <laughs> And people kind of got <laughs> bummed out about it. Some people thought it was hilarious how bad it was. I had a couple friends. They were divided. They were like, never stop doing that. And other guys were like, I thought you, I always kind of think you're like one of the funnier guys we know. And that was terrible. And I was like, yep, yeah, that's fine. It's fine. I go, but we're still going to keep doing it. We did it with Jeff Garland. That went even worse. Um, yeah, but I'm bad. not, I'm, yeah, the Garland one was he didn't. I really couldn't even to,
5: tell. We, I, we still can't even tell what his vibe was, if he was just giving you shit or if he actually hated it.
0: I think him eating for thirty minutes during an interview kind of tipped us oh, off that dude, he wasn't. That he was wasn't, crazy. Yeah, that he wasn't really into. What's having What's wrong to do with it you, yet. guy?
4: That's crazy.
5: But didn't he say at the start of the pod he was like, "I do this because I, I do this with people that I like." So he he was kind of yeah, throwing you I off. I think a that's bit. a cop out. I know. So yeah, maybe, I don't. But like, I don't why would he waste it. his time? I don't. know. Who knows? I, I, I don't
0: know. believe any of that. I think he was kind of promoting something because he he had he was in a. Sw- He'd done Chris Long's pod, you know, and you usually will talk to your other buddies be like, hey, are you getting this guy or whatever? Um, And so I think he was in the mix there. So I think he was trying to like be nice to me, but I don't think he could give a shit at all at all. And um, that was that was fine. But when you're going to eat the whole interview, I was like, all right, so whatever. And then at the end, I also, though, even though I didn't love that part of it, I still like the interview. He's fine. um, But I knew it wasn't going to go well. And I actually am sympathetic to it. I mean, it's it's kind of like that story I told about when I was back in Boston. The guy was going to tell me about Chauncey Billups. And he had this Chauncey Billups thing and he was convinced he was right. And I was like, okay, well, here's why you're wrong about Chauncey Billups. And then I took him through the whole thing. And then he's like, Yeah, I don't really I don't really believe you. And I go, Okay, the problem is that I knew the guys in the front office that made that decision at the time. They told me what happened. And I became friends with Chauncey Billups. And then he told me what happened. And I have I couldn't have a better full scope of the entire fucking story. And I'm telling you what happened, and you're still telling me I'm wrong. Yeah, like, sources, all right. dude. I was like, all right. I was like, hey, man, really nice meeting you. I'm out of here. Like, that was it. So, this shit happens to Jeff Garland all the time. Hey, got a great curb thing. I mean, Larry, it must be brutal. So, I'm still sensitive to knowing as I was doing it, it's never going to work. Sorry. Right, so, Matt Damon, Van Pelt and I had started doing the Boston accents. It happened very organically. We were watching a golf tournament together while we were prepping for a show. And for whatever reason, because Scott can do almost any voice. We just started doing golf commentary in the Boston accents. And, you know, I'll try to come up with examples. I was always afraid to do it on the fly because I was going to swear uh back on radio. We had to tape those because we were just going to swear no matter what. Um, I'd be like, Jude, Nick Faldo. What kind of fucking truck you think Nick Faldo drives? And then Van Pelt be like, super duty. Be like, yeah, no shit, right? Like, fucking imagine Nick Faldo fucking driving around in a fucking F-150 with two wheel. Like, no way. No way. Fucking Super Duty, maybe a Julie, fucking trailer hitch. Can you imagine what fucking size trailer hitch you think Nick Faldo has? And that was it. And we just started going back and forth. And we did it for like an hour. And it was kind of like insane that we were laughing so hard, just entertaining each other. And that's friendship. Um... So then that became the segment. We started kind of doing that stuff. So when Matt Damon was booked, I think we at first we were supposed to have him in person. He was supposed to do a car wash. Didn't work out. Um, I had also heard that of all the celebrities that are out there, that Matt Damon is still a guy that is on the normal side of the spectrum. And that if anything was going to work, a guy like that you would have a better chance with. So I go, look, let's do something different. Let's try something that stands out instead of fucking seven minutes on Invictus and hey, you know, how'd you get in the character and all this different stuff, which is what you always do anyway. You know, I still do it because you kind of feel like you have to, you owe it to the person that's coming on to promote what it is that they're doing. So you've got to ask them some questions. Um, I'm like, let's try something that if we land it, it'll be unbelievable. And Scott's like, absolutely. I go, let's do the accents. I know it seems, you know, cliche with Damon, but we're funny we do good accents it'll work if we do it right and scott's like all right absolutely <laughs> so right before he's supposed to come by and do this car wash we get we get word that he's not coming and that he's doing it by phone and so fam pelt's like we're not doing it we're not doing it if he's not in person we're not doing it and i go yeah i know i go but you know what i still think we should i go who cares and he's like i don't want to look like an asshole." and here's the thing is scott is always more corporate than me um he is, he is better at being like a representative of something than I will ever be. He just is, it's so good. He has, he has figured that part out of it in a great way. My thing is that, you know how many times I've talked to Matt Damon since that time? Zero. And there's no way, even if I nail it and I run into Matt Damon, we're not going to become buddies. He doesn't need a guy like me now entering his life at this state, like post 50 and be like, oh, you know, I've been hanging out out with a lot is Rossillo. It's been awesome. Like that's not going to happen. But when you're younger, you kind of be like, oh, you know, I want Matt Damon to think I'm cool or whatever. Um, I did not care if it bombed. And I was like, dude, it doesn't matter if Matt Damon, if it fucking bombs. Oh, no, we're not going to be buddies with Matt Damon. But Scott, in a smarter way than me, was like I'd rather not have a shitty interview with Matt Damon and have him be like those guys suck, which is a very good point. Okay, so we go into the interview and I'm, I'll admit, a little pissy because I was like, what the fuck? We're just going to talk about this stupid rugby movie the whole time. Again, not a stupid movie. I shouldn't even have said it. I'm simply saying in in the larger, you're term, projecting
4: onto the movie. Yeah, now. right,
0: right. <laughs> well, no matter what the movie was, I'm like, all right, you know, we're just going to like, hey, Could so, so tell well us, thing. tell us a little bit about uh. You know, Did you play rugby growing up? You know what I mean? Like all the questions that everybody always asks. So Damon comes on, we're taping. That's important too. And Scott's off to the corner. I'm on the little side chair in this little, little studio back before they expanded the radio department. And I'm looking at Scott. I'm like, we should do it. He was going really well. We're four or five minutes in six minutes. I was like, this is going really well. And he was out. Damon's great. He's unbelievable. Whenever he's on with Bill, I'm like, this guy's so fucking good. So I'm looking at Scott, I'm like, dude, I think, I think we're going to do it. I was like, we should do it. And he's like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Right. And then we're mouthing this to each other. We're hitting, you know, our talk back button or we're hitting the cough button. So we can talk and it's not going out of the mic. It's like, don't, don't. I'm like, dude, I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to do it. And look, this is still kind of more Scott's real estate than it is mine. You know, and that's not kind of, it's a hundred percent true. So it's, it's wrapping up and I go, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And so. I just went, you know, hey, Matty, Matty G, uh, question for you. And the whole point was I wanted him to try to say that he regretted something. So I asked him, hey, do you regret not getting to the ground floor of Affleck Insurance, considering how close you are with Ben? And then he laughed, but I did it in the accent. And then I said, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he fucking like hardcore, hard, hard laugh. And then Scott jumped in and started doing like, his routine about the DVDs of the, a volume eight Pirates, something or whatever, which was really good. He kind of had practice because we knew what we wanted to do and how we wanted to practice it. But the point is this, there's a very good chance that would have bombed. Um, Damon was the reason it didn't. It had more to do with the guests than anything we were going to say, but most guests are going to claim up and be like, Oh cool. You guys are going to try to do like, it's like when Will Ferrell comes on and you go, Oh, you're going to try to be funnier than me. Okay, cool. Which I did try when I had him it out yeah <laughs> and but by the way it worked that one worked and there's been a bunch of others that haven't
5: worked that haven't well, worked and i'm a- ha- have you shared the krasinski story because that was when you actually didn't do it right People i didn't do, to do it something with and you- yeah yeah
0: yeah krasinski i wanted to do the entire interview as if you were jim still but was blowing up as a movie star being like can you believe like where you're at now and where you were like all those years and then I told him after, I was like, hey, I kind of want to do this. And he's like, oh, that would have been great. And I could tell it was like, I'm really glad you didn't do that, actually, because it's fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so his words did not match the look on his face. He's like, oh, really? That's super original. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, cool, 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 that would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so there you go. Uh, I, don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what lesson is in there. I, I think the lesson is if you end up having a talk show and you have some people on it, you know, take some chances every now and then. Cause I know, I will know in the moment like this, there's a better chance this doesn't work than does work. And I'd rather, I'd rather fuck it up a few times to then never have anything ever kind of stand out. And honestly, I still don't know that I push myself enough to ask stuff that's totally out there or, you know, right to it. But I think I get there eventually, but sometimes I think, but Again, that's a whole other thing on massaging interviews and the guests and kind of warming them up. Like even with Michael Wolf on Wednesday, when the first answer, I go, oh, no, like I don't know if I'm going to get to where I want to get to here because he was, he was quick, and then he kind of warmed up after a couple minutes, and then we got there. So I wasn't going to try to uh, do any jokes with uh, Michael Wolf though. So anyway. <laughs> All right, there you go. Um, again, Merry Christmas. We'll be back on Monday. So... Uh, we'll have the NBA wrap and the NFL stuff. So we'll probably have a big, big, uh, big pod there. So I know we rambled there a bit at the end, but we kind of just wanted to. Anything left? Anything else for you guys? I don't think we need to add anything else to that. So that's why I went so long. Well. Okay. Thanks to Kyle. Thanks to Steve. Ryan Russula Podcast, Spotify, Ringer. Please subscribe and enjoy the weekend.